Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And why wouldn't you want to drink? Right. Why wouldn't you want to drink? We're here to talk about why therapists drink. So the world is going to hell, climate crisis, disappearing species and thousand-year-old trees, wars, genocides, poverty, the wealth divide, mental health pandemics, suicides, widespread disconnection between people, no time to remedy that disconnection, the food industry, the broken healthcare system of the U.S., and we're on a treadmill that is speeding up under our feet. Wow. It all I'm feels so out of control. Depressed. Thank you. Yeah, what <laughs> Thank a way you, to start Tracy. your morning, right? <laughs> well, like we said last week, we suck. Everything sucks. We're right, going to right. hell. We're all going to die. And and it's really hard. Life is really hard. It can be very hard and, and lonely. Yes. And then therapists, uh, we talked about loneliness Upon loneliness. Loneliness upon loneliness. Hard work, maybe overwork. Yes. Or maybe worry about your business. Yes. Worry that you're not working enough. And listening to others' problems every day. All day, every day. day. Yeah. can be very difficult. It's enough to make you want to drink. It is. It can drive you to drink. It it really, really can. In fact... um, I want to just mention some statistics. So there there is some evidence out there that healthcare workers are more susceptible to overdrinking and and developing a substance use problem than the general population. Um and then some 2020 information has come out showing that um healthcare professionals are 10 to 15% more likely to develop this kind of problem, and that the COVID stress syndrome makes healthcare workers more vulnerable to substance abuse. I'm guessing that doesn't make healthcare practitioners better at their jobs. Having COVID stress syndrome? Drinking. Drinking? Oh, good point. <laughs> uh, how could it? It probably how doesn't. How could it? I don't think it, it can. With anything, Right. Right. I mean, except in the moment, it feels really, really nice. It does. That initial beginning of drinking feels fantastic. And then something goes flat. Something goes flat. So I remember being an intern in the Dallas Public Schools, and I remember meeting up uh, with my fellow interns and the people we were working with. After a hard day, um, we would meet up at the Blue Mesa and we would have these wonderful blue drinks. Uh. (laughs) It was so fun. And we were just venting about the day and then, you know, feeling more and more sort of loose and relaxed. I remember that fondly. That's like just a really positive experience. And I'm guessing a lot of people have those kinds of memories about 
hanging out with coworkers after a hard day of serving the public, needing something to take the edge off. Absolutely. I have fond memories about drinking, and that's one of the reasons that I think people continue to drink. They're looking for that feeling that they had had at one time. Yes. But it becomes very elusive. Becomes elusive. We're going to find out more about that today in a little bit when we when we introduce our guest. But I guess the, the main point here is that as helpers, as healthcare professionals, as teachers, as coaches, um, therapists, we are more vulnerable to this than we probably realize. Yes, and we need strategies and ways or a plan to help ourselves in ways that are healthy uh-huh. and help us be better helpers. Right, right. So <laughs> we're going to have a very sobering conversation today. <laughs> um, in a moment, we'll be joined by Stephanie Zucchini who uh, works with me. She's a colleague of mine and she's a family therapist. She has expertise, special expertise in um, alcoholism and in recovery from alcoholism. And um, yeah, I'm anxious to talk with her. Should we invite her in now? Let's do. Okay. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, Stephanie. Hello. Thank you so much for having me here today. I feel privileged to be here with you guys. Well, thank you. We are so glad to have you here. Will you start by telling us a little bit about your story and how you came to be a therapist doing what you do? Okay. I love telling this story. Um, I appreciate the opportunity. Of course, you never know who needs to hear it at what time. So just you know, understand that this is my perspective. This is what I've experienced in my personal life. Um, I am seven years sober. So I know that there are people out there who may be questioning what's happening with them. So here's my story. So as we know, as therapists, you know, we always go back to what happened to us in our childhood, right? Mm -hmm. We always go back to that initial programming that we had as children. So what was happening? So I had a single mom raising four children, and she was a very jovial person. She was always really happy. And, you know, I guess what I was seeing as a child is someone who liked to partake in alcohol. So alcohol was present and allowed in our our household as children. And I got to just see that as part of the normal, right? So um, when teenager, preteen started to hit, um, I got influenced by my friends to participate. And even though I knew it was wrong, I still got an opportunity to drink with my friends Uh and, you know, just like any preteen or a teenager sneaking it out of the cabinet and taking it with you to other friends' houses. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that became a normal for me. We just wanted to have fun. Right. I think they made a song about that. I just want to, (laughs) (laughs) but Um, You know, and I continue to have that same behavior, you know, going through my 
my young adulthood. And, you know, what started to happen was without me even knowing what was happening to me, uh -huh. I, I was reaching for the bottle. I love gourmet cooking. Uh -huh. I just love gourmet cooking. And so I would, and a lot of the gourmet cooks cook with wine. Sure. Yeah. So I actually was um, cooking with wine and then I would find myself pouring a glass yeah. and cooking with the wine yeah. and pouring more of a glass. And the next thing I know, I'm kind of looking in our recycle bin in the garage and there's a lot of bottles in there. <laughs> you know, I would say that's the first time that I noticed, hmm, I wonder if that's okay, <laughs> you know, but I didn't do anything about it right away, Yeah, you know? And nobody really said anything to me. It was just kind of my internal voice going, hmm, that's a lot of bottles. Yeah. Um, I would say it was at least five to 10 years later after a divorce, after a lot of emotional trauma out of a lot of things, you know, my mother died in when I was 11, just to kind of fill in a little bit. My mother died when I was 11. So I didn't yeah. have that parental guidance anymore. So I was kind of on my own. And when I got divorced, then I really felt alone yeah. and I found comfort in escaping with mm -hmm. alcohol. Mm -hmm. I remember exactly where I was. I was in my apartment and I had had quite the bender the night before. And I remember looking in the refrigerator going, boy, it's morning, but I want to drink. Oh. And I'll never forget that that picture that just kind of stays in my head right then. I still didn't do anything about it. I actually went to the little convenience store and bought another bottle of wine in the morning, uh -huh. you know, and I would say that would really be the beginning of what I call, you know, the downward spiral. Yeah. You hear a lot of people talk about the downward spiral, right? So um, I had become a really, uh, dependent, obsessed alcoholic with my alcohol. And I was even drinking at work. Mm. So what kind of work were you doing at the time? You, <laughs> you weren't a therapist yet. I wasn't a therapist yet. Um, I had had, you know, delusions of grandeur that I was going to do all these wonderful things. And this is kind of, you know, the stress that you put on yourself when you're not a hundred percent there, because I wasn't, I was, you know, numbing myself and in this world of delusions uh, with my alcohol. And I was doing, um, I was actually working for Chase Bank, talking to people about their credit cards, a worldwide corporation. You know, I thought, oh, I could just move up in management and make all kinds of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just not realizing that I was, you know, dampening those opportunities. And I had one of my um, supervisors and I, I have to do a shout out. Hi, Jennifer Clark. She's just an amazing person. Um, she actually took me aside and she goes, are you okay? One of those people. And I had, I had not really been approached in that way. Someone with caring and compassion instead of accusatory, mm. you know, you shouldn't be doing that or, you know, because you hear that all the time. Okay. And so I had someone approach me in that way and that changed my life. It turned me around. I knew I was in trouble 
because of the amount of alcohol that I was drinking and the times of day that I was drinking it and the continued constant 24 seven and the, I, I knew my body didn't feel good. I knew my mind wasn't right. And if Jennifer hadn't stepped in and said, are you okay? I probably would not have gotten the help that I needed. Wow. What yeah. a great moment in your story because somebody connected with you in a very gentle way. Right. And just noticed. That's right. That you weren't okay. That I wasn't okay. Yeah. And, you know, she was my angel at that moment. Um, because if I wouldn't have had her say something to me, I, I may not be alive. I mean, I was literally killing myself. She might have saved your life. She really did. And I always acknowledge her. That's why I had to do a shout out because it's one of those pivotal moments in your life. You have, you know, a handful of really memorable, pivotal moments in your life. And that was one of them for me. And ever since that day, because I couldn't be here if it wasn't for her ever since that day, ever since. And so, so you got yourself into recovery. I did. So yeah, carry on. You did ask me a question. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) I get carried away with my story and there's so much more I could share, but we don't have enough time for that. So, um, so to help you understand what happens to your body with alcohol is that it is the one thing that if you suddenly stop drinking it, you could potentially die. I've heard that. Yes. I mean, out of all the drugs that are out there, including pills and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, heroin and, you know, cocaine and all of those other things that you can be addicted to, um, you know, with a caveat of not having any other health problems alongside that, but, you know, with just being a normal, healthy person, and then you drink all this alcohol and you stop suddenly, I mean, your brain isn't producing the chemicals that it needs. Um, your brain, mm-hmm. you know, um, needs the alcohol. You become physically dependent mm-hmm. and you could go into seizures and seizures can, you know, kill you. You can yeah. actually have a heart attack and die. Yeah. So you had to go to the, I went to the hospital. I was actually in the hospital for five days. That Which took that doesn't long. sound that long, actually. Was that just a detox period? That was just a detox ah, period. Okay. Yeah. Were there shoving vitamins and minerals and, and you know, helping me, you know, try to, to lessen the physical effects okay. of the alcohol. And then I had a social worker come in and, you know, tell me about opportunities for treatment centers because you go from the hospital to a treatment center. And then I went to a treatment center. I did um, Cox North has an outpatient therapy. Mm -hmm. And so um, I did an outpatient therapy. Um, They're wonderful over there. Uh, It just talks about what was happening in my brain. So, and I would, I would see counselors, I would have teachers, I would have all of those things happening. Mm -hmm. And I became fascinated why did I do this to myself? I felt, of course, the level of shame and guilt that you feel when you do things to yourself that you know aren't (laughs) good. But I also became fascinated and I started researching and I wanted to know more. Then after I kind of got my mind back, that's when I said, I want to help other people. I want to pass this along. I want to help other people learn what I've learned. 
And so I asked my counselor at the time, I said, I want to do your job. Uh And he goes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was able to get into college and do it. Oh my goodness. Okay. What a beautiful story. And I love how the education piece comes in. You're hungry to learn. Yes. And that, that helped you. It really did. I wanted to know what happened in my brain. Why would I do that to myself? I remember going to the the convenience store, you know, timing it just right so that I would make sure to have alcohol in the morning, you know, and not drink it that night. And, you know, that's the obsession of the mind and the Mm -hmm. compulsion of the body that they talk about in AA. Now, I am a huge AA follower. So anybody who's AA, hey, anybody who is um, (laughs) not or feels like, it didn't work for them. Just, you know, know that this is, this is my perspective yeah. and there's other things out there. Right. But um, yeah, that, that obsession and compulsion just goes along with, you know, the shame and the guilt and you get in this cycle yeah. that you feel like you can't break, mm-hmm. you know, you feel bad. So you want to feel better. So you drink, mm-hmm. you, you drink, you feel better. And then you come down off drinking, you feel bad and shame, mm-hmm. guilt and shame. And then you go back in and you you feel better after you drink. And then it's just round and round and round you go. Yeah. You know, and that's where that obsession and compulsion comes in where you can't stop yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. And after the break, we're going to talk a little more about that cycle and mm-hmm. how the body and the nervous system are, are involved mm-hmm. in that. We're going to get more specific with it. But it sounds like um, this this was a whole learning experience for you that catapulted you into kind of knowing what your purpose was, what you needed to do with your life. That's right. You know, purpose, perfect word. I didn't have one. Uh I I was facing something that was not sustainable. Right. How can you continue to drink alcohol enough to change your mindset? Yeah. And then expect to be a flourishing, healthy part of society. You know, wonderful question. Mm -hmm. Wonderful question. So after the break, we're going to talk more specifically about what happens in this cycle and more about what helpers might be going through um, when we drink too much. That sounds great. I'm glad to help as a helper. (laughs) All right. We'll be back in a few. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. 
Welcome back to Reconceive. We are talking with Stephanie Zucchini today about why therapists drink. So we just sort of got into the the issue by hearing Stephanie tell her own story um, of drinking too much and then coming to realize that she had a problem and then realizing that she wanted to really learn and do a deep dive into this problem and learn how to help other people. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Thank you so much for your story. You're welcome. And and I'm curious, um, thinking about helpers, Mm -hmm. what do you believe the true percentage is of of helpers who have some kind of addictive process going on that drink too much, shop too much, smoke too much, whatever? Sure. Uh, That is really an excellent question, Deborah. Um, I think that it's a lot higher than what any research could possibly show. Because if you think about, you know, what we're tracking and what we're trying to research, they have to voluntarily, mm-hmm. you know, open up and admit to something like that, you know, and, you know, in, in step one of Alcoholics Anonymous, it talks about, we admitted yeah. we had a problem, you know, just that's, that is, that is so epic because just that one thing, I bet, you know, so far what we've learned today and what we've learned why we've researched 10 to 15%, you know, higher than the normal person is what a healthcare practitioner would be facing. But I really think that it is higher than that. I've wondered. Yeah. And, and it just, it doesn't mean that what they're doing is necessarily wrong. However, you know, it's right for them in the moment. Because we talk about being present and in the moment. Mm -hmm. I think that what needs to happen is that they just need to be made aware of that moderation, you know, is really important. Um, It's the why behind Mm. what they're doing that really matters more than anything. Why I'm having this drink. Why am I doing this? Am I am I just doing it to have fun and and this is an occasional thing mm-hmm. or am I am I doing this on a regular basis where mm-hmm. I every night when I get home I have to have two or three mm-hmm. or four or five drinks I have to drink enough to where I can go to sleep mm-hmm. when we develop those little sneaky dependent behaviors mm-hmm. those are the red flags yeah yeah so, and those those are the things that make it harder to have moderation correct oh. Yeah, Tracy, you got it. I mean, true. Um, is there someone or somebody that can say something to you? Do you have those kind of people in your life? You know, are you living alone or do you live with people? All of these little factors. Or do you live with people who drink? Or do you live around? Yeah, exactly, Deborah. Like you said, drinking begets drinking. It does. Birds of a feather. My grandmother used to say, you know, all the like-minded people, Uh you know, flock together, you know, and having that social, we call that psychosocial connection, you know, and having that, that's just one of the many things that drives people. I mean, but for healthcare professionals, especially during COVID mm-hmm. and especially in mental health, mm-hmm. all of us practitioners who are, who are listening daily to this trauma that our clients have gone through, through the trauma of COVID, watching people die, mm-hmm. you know, listening to people's hurt and angst. What do we do with that? Mm-hmm. You know, right. I can't tell you how many of my friends, therapist friends have talked about over drinking during this pandemic couple of years and how 
they've kind of caught themselves up short, Mm -hmm. realizing like in the last five or six months, oh my goodness, this is getting to be a habit. Yeah. I need to cut this out. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're fortunate to actually recognize that in themselves. Um, Here's a little statistic. So in March, around March of 2020, the uh, liquor companies, the big liquor, you know, distributors reported a 110% increase in liquor sales. How's that for a statistic? Somebody's doing very well with this. <laughs> Everybody was isolating at home, you know, prophylactics on the shelves were gone. <laughs> Alcohol was gone off of the shelves because everybody was at home. Yeah. You know, so um, that was shocking to me. So we've talked a little bit about how it sneaks up on us, this problem. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the brain and what is going on physically? Okay. That that starts to make this a problem that we can't handle ourselves. Okay. That is a really good question, Deborah. So um, that was one of the key things that really got me motivated. I wanted to know what happened, mm-hmm. you know, what happened. So one of during my research, I actually found, um, uh, this, this guy called Kevin McCauley. He is a wonderful, uh, researcher. And I believe, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, people probably heard of him before. And I think he's a doctor, and I don't know if he practices anymore, but he created this um, video out there and you guys can watch it. It's out there on, you know, freebie or whatever, but it's called Pleasure Unwoven. Oh, yeah. So what that is, is he actually broke down what alcoholism is and addiction into the, <clears throat> excuse me, into the disease model. Okay, so let's talk about what the disease model really is. What does that involve? And it involves three things. There is an organ that's involved, right? What whatever that organ is, and then there's a deficit, and then you have symptoms of disease. So okay. those are the three main things okay. that describe a disease. Sure. So what is it in addiction? So the organ is the brain. The deficit is the cause. You know what has caused our brain to to become addicted and then the symptoms so we talk about all of these things and so you know the alcohol the drugs the substance the substances that we use that's the cause Mm -hmm. that has caused our brain to not function like it's supposed to Mm -hmm. the symptoms are withdrawals you know inability to to um, function in a responsible way in society Um, You're not taking care of your responsibilities. You have failing health. You know, those are the symptoms. I've run out of money, but I don't care. I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to do is go buy alcohol or go buy those drugs, right? Those are the symptoms. So essentially what has happened is our, our brains have taken Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And instead of actually getting the air and the water and the shelter and the paying for the things that we need to survive. Mm-hmm. We've put alcohol and drugs first. Right. So that's what happens in our brain. Does that not beg the question? Why would we do that? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, are shame and guilt also symptoms? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Shame and guilt is a symptom. That's a result of 
not being able to control ourselves, Mm -hmm. of knowing that we need this external stimulus in some way in order to live a normal life, Mm -hmm. what we consider to be normal in the moment. We need it so much that we put it at the top of the pyramid. We put it at the top of the pyramid. Above spinach. Above Above exercise. Popeye's not going to be happy. Right. (laughs) That's right. Above love, above relationship. That's exactly right. We choose it. We prioritize it over everything. Absolutely. You know, we look at, let's just talk about when I've taught people, I I teach them about Maslow. I I teach them about what it means. You've got your, you know, physiosocial stuff, sex, sleeping. You know, those things that are really connected and then safety. And then we have love and belonging. Right. Mm -hmm. And I tell you, you know, when we get stuck in this psychosocial mode of addiction, this is where people want to go to the bars and hang out with like minds that are also drinking. Right. And you get addicted to that environment. You get addicted to that stimulus and you get addicted to you know, the other people that are there with you, you know, and it just becomes, it starts to grow. I call it a monster. Experience. Yes. The monster is, a, is this whole experience. Whole experience. That's right. Entertaining all the senses. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So it really does a number mentally on you. It changes the physiology of your body to where you become dependent on it. And one of the things that I was talking to you about earlier is that um, our brains are very efficient. They will not produce the chemicals on their own if we're getting those, you know, stimulant chemicals yeah. externally. Like dopamine in like particular. Like dopamine and yeah. epinephrine, yeah. especially. And, you know, if you're using drugs that that take that uh, natural production away, and then all of a sudden you stop using those drugs... That's where you go into the withdrawals and you have, you know, you have to recover. And this is where having people around you that are doing the same is really important. That's why AA, I keep Alcoholics Anonymous, AKA is AA. Uh (laughs) So, you know, um, they've been around since 1935. It's one of the top 100 things that changed the world. Right. And and like you mentioned before, it doesn't work for everybody. It's right. But it works for a lot of people. It does. It works for a lot of people yeah. um, in the circles that we're in. You know, it it says it works if you work it. It worked for you. It worked for me. Yeah. But I was resistant to it at first, Deb. You were. I was. Okay. You know, the shame and guilt that you talked about, Tracy, um, superseded my ability to walk through those doors, you know, and be around those other people, because then, then I admitted at that point, just the physical part of walking through that door, I was admitting I had a problem, right? Not only to myself, but to whoever else was in the room. Before you step in there, you could still be kind of in denial. That's right. You can pretend that it's not (laughs) a problem. I don't have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering, once you stepped in, did you feel a sense of pride or possibility or or did that shame and guilt continue for a while, even after you kind of admitted that you had a problem? That's good, Tracy. That is really good because my first experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I was really surprised that when I walked through that door, it didn't 
act like that to me. I actually became angry. I wanted Mm. to find an excuse to make me leave. I didn't (laughs) want to be sitting there. I wanted to, I wanted nothing to do with it. Oh, like these people are nuts. These people are nuts. (laughs) Right. I wanted to find fault somewhere. I'm not like them. So that I would have a reason to leave. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I, you know, and here again is the universe and the powers that be and God and however you want to word that. Um, I was in a small meeting with just women. Okay. It probably had maybe 10 women at it, which is very small. Yeah. Right. So I was hesitant. I was angry. I was looking for some reason to leave. That reason never happened. So I came back. <laughs> it's like, okay, we'll just, and I sat there very quiet. And I, you know, that's not normal for me. I am an extrovert, as I'm sure you guys can imagine. I am an extrovert. I love to talk. <laughs> um, but I probably went to three or four of those meetings before I actually participated. And once you start participating, Tracy, there's this thing that starts happening mentally, you start to feel that sense of connection, which is number three on that Maslow's hierarchy of needs Mm -hmm. when we have love and belonging. Right. Right. And so all of a sudden, I didn't feel quite so alone. I didn't feel as much shame and guilt because guess what? Everybody else was sharing their shame and guilt too. Okay. You know, um, we so are our own worst enemies. Yeah. It had really? to be sort of a relief to find out that I'm not the only one who feels this shame and guilt. That's it right there. Mm-hmm. You know, you've really nailed it on the head. I'm not alone, mm-hmm. you know, because alcoholism, addiction of any kind, mm-hmm. you become so engulfed with that shame and guilt that Tracy mentioned. And you feel isolated whether or not you're isolated or not, you feel it. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. You know, I can't do this. You know, why am, you know, why am I alone? Those things. So I've been thinking a lot about how um, dissociation happens to us in a variety of ways. And, you know, I I think about dissociation on a, on a spectrum a long continuum, Mm -hmm. never ending continuum and, and alcohol and other substances are on that continuum somewhere. They're just another form mm-hmm. of numbing out or taking ourselves out of the moment. That's right. So I think about the the jobs that we do and how um, stressful they can be and how how hard the work can be, literally, mentally, emotionally hard. Sure. And how we need things to um, offset that. All right. And sometimes, you know, if we haven't gotten out ahead of that in a way, like if we're not practice at daily meditation and moving our bodies and doing different things to take care of ourselves, then we, we do end up sometimes after a long day needing something, a quick fix. Right. And even that concept of the quick fix to make us feel better. That's right. Right now for just a little while um, really lends itself to something dissociative. That's correct. So um, in a little while, we're going to talk about kind of what to do about this. If you suspect that you're a person who um, drinks too much and you don't want to do that, you want to be present in your life. Right. Um, We're going to talk specifically about self-care for you, what, what you can do. So I want to kind of be thinking in that direction, 
But um, let's just pause for a minute and acknowledge that, again, the work that we do is hard. Yes. It requires you to be present and focused all day. All day. Mm -hmm. And to think about things that are painful and difficult, other people's pain, which is going to resonate with your own pain sure. to trigger your own issues sure. of loss and longing. So you really do need ways to soothe that. That's right. That's a real thing. It is a real thing. Absolutely. It's a real human thing. Absolutely. You really nailed it right there when you said human, because it doesn't matter who you are. You could from be, you could be from a peasant to a pope. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. We are all susceptible to wanting that quick fix. Absolutely. A little sweetness, a little something. Pleasure. Pleasure. Yes. Pleasure. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And and am I limited? Is my life just about work or can it also be about pleasure? That's right. Yeah. That's right. So um, in a moment, we'll be back and we'll talk more about pleasure, how to get some Sounds great. Okay. Be back in a few. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. We are talking with Stephanie Zucchini today about why therapists drink and really why why anybody drinks, but specifically helpers. And before we kind of jump into the solutions to this problem, I want to just say that there, there are specific reasons why you might drink too much. Mm-hmm. Um, the feeling of futility is something that's been mentioned in literature. What's the use? Uh, what's the use in, in anything? Um, feelings of worthlessness or self-rejection, <clears throat> like I'm a failure and I suck. <laughs> like we about last week, right? Feelings of living a lie, feelings of guilt and inadequ- inadequacy, which sort of suggests secrets that I keep that I, I can't share with anyone. Mm-hmm feeling locked in by unresolved negative emotions. Like I'll always feel this way. I'm not going to heal. Mm-hmm. I'm stuck in this mindset. I'm never going to be different. Um, and protecting against feelings that we are afraid to feel mm-hmm. um, like anger, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> worried, being worried and bothered by a lack of communication with others, 
significant others in particular. And I, I'm taking this list from Carol Truman, who wrote the book Feelings Buried Alive Never Die, which is actually a very interesting book suggested by my Reiki practitioner. So, all right, what do we do about this? So, <laughs> of course, you know, the emotions are what we try to hide from. We get into this state of, I don't want to deal with it, yeah. right? All of those things were very good, you know, locked in. It's never going to get any better. Mm-hmm. You know, your attitude, you you start to feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. You know, you get into this uh, experience of denial or fear. Mm-hmm. I think fear is a huge driver as you know, sitting in the therapist chair, what we start to hear a lot when our clients are expressing their feelings or emotions, we hear a lot of fear. Yeah. So if we, you know, alcohol is a sedative hypnotic, you know, if we're, if we're anxious all the time, all of a sudden we're drinking and suddenly we feel better because it has Mm -hmm. lessened that anxiety. Yeah. It's like a vacation. It's like a vacation. So for therapists, you know, there was, I'm going to throw some statistics at you that was done by uh, uh, Lewis and Kenya. Uh, this was actually something that was done back in 2008. But, you know, healthcare protectioner, pr- practitioner, excuse me, 697 of them were interviewed. 68.7% mm. talked about having characteristics of potentially substance use. Mm-hmm. You know, just those characteristics, like, and they had to openly admit that, Mm -hmm. you know, so that was a really good study that I found, you know, and what was interesting within that study, they talked about how they felt invincible. They had this immune feeling towards addiction because Mm -hmm. they were practitioners in the field. Yeah that can't happen to me. Uh-huh. There's another, you know, I know better. I know better. Yeah. Right. And so as therapists, I'm hoping that somebody close to you, that someone in your circle, someone in your support system may say something to you like, Hey, I noticed every time you come home from work, you drink a six pack. Mm-hmm. Or I noticed that that really large bottle of vodka is gone in a week or mm-hmm. And, and that you and that you listen and not respond like I did, which which was, oh, I'm fine. You know, you, you say, oh, I'm fine. Don't worry about that. Don't or, worry about me. Or I'm uh, on vacation. Or, I got it you know, under control. I got it under control. Mm-hmm. Because in reality, other people will notice it in you before you notice it in yourself. That's so true. You know. So so listen to people and and open yourself up to feedback. That's right. And as therapists, I think it's hard because we do kind of, I'm not going to say elevate ourselves, but maybe that isn't a better word for that. I think we we do elevate ourselves to being a little above Mm -hmm. getting to that point, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And so watch out for those things, guys. You know, if you, if tonight when you go home, if you are sitting there watching TV and all of a sudden you've popped the lid on your third or fourth beer, think about what we've talked about here. Think about why am I drinking more than more than enough? Or even your first beer? Maybe your first. Maybe your first beer, mm-hmm. but you you got to have it. You've got it's your why? ritual. That's right. Yeah. Oh, ritual. That's good. 
It's become a habit. It's become a habit. It's become a habit. Right. Mm -hmm. This this feeling of immunity reminds me of the snobbery we talked about with Doug Shirley. Right. So it seemed similar anyway. Yes, the defensiveness that we have to cultivate to have a boundary between us and the problem being brought to us is the same defensiveness that can keep us from really looking at our own behavior objectively. That's it. Being able to be objective for our own behavior is extremely hard. I mean, when I shared my story, it was backwards compared to what we're talking about now. I came from your normal average Joe into addiction, into therapy. Now we're talking to you guys as therapists Mm -hmm. and possibly and potentially experiencing some of the things that I experienced before Mm -hmm. I became a therapist. Yeah. You know, would I have the judgment and self-reflection now as I did then? I don't know. I honestly would say I don't know. Well, that brings up an an interesting point. I'm always recommending Al-Anon for everybody. I just think we all need to go to Al-Anon because the education in there is so solid. The relationship education. That's right. You learn about boundaries and learn about taking responsibility for your own feelings. And you learn about detaching with love and all of these really wonderful things. But so few people actually take me up on it. And I will say, you know what? I'll meet you there. That's right. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go with you. That's I'll right. go with you to AA. So few people actually take me up on it. That's right. Why is that? You know, I'm sure there's a myriad of reasons, multiple reasons why people don't, don't take you up on that. Um, Al-Anon, for those who don't know what Al-Anon is, Al-Anon is the sister that com- that runs alongside Alcoholics Anonymous. Al-Anon is for companions of people who have alcoholism or have a family member or have a close member or just for people who are not addicted. Mm-hmm. And Al-Anon was actually created by Bill W.'s wife. Bill W. is one of the authors of the big book the of big Alcoholics book. Anonymous. Yeah. Yes. And she created uh, a woman's group. And then what flourished from the woman's group became Al-Anon because there were so many men that were going to Alcoholics Anonymous. The women didn't know what to do with when their husbands came home. Right. Okay. So Al-Anon was created to help the addicted person's partners or children or what, you know, whoever this is that's not addicted to understanding how to behave. How, how am I supposed to be in this relationship? So Al-Anon, you know, kind of went along with Alcoholics Anonymous and they, they have been around so long. There's been so much social, you know, uh, uh, beating up, you know, I am, oh, I don't need to go to Alcoholics mm-hmm. Anonymous or, you know, I don't, I don't have to do this or, and, and we even get some resistance, and I've heard this from clients, um, because it's a free service, right? Mm-hmm. We look for places that offer free places to gather, right? Mm-hmm. And in the community that oftentimes will be churches. Oh, you're right. Yeah. Yes. And not everybody practices a religion. Right. Uh-huh. And so they, they feel resistant to go to church because they yeah. think all of a sudden, oh, this is going to be about this particular religion. Yeah. Right. And sometimes it is. And sometimes it can be. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is God talk. We talk about God. Right. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous was founded, you know, 
to, to understand that God is of your own understanding. Uh-huh. But a lot of people think that because it has said that three letter word in there that, oh, they're going to make me become religion, yeah. religious, yeah. you know? So um, what Al-Anon really does, and let me encourage you, you become part of, you become connected with other people who yes. are suffering from the same things that you are. Mm-hmm. Because even though you're not the addict or alcoholic, you have a lot of those same characteristics that that alcoholic, oh, it's my fault. You have shame and guilt. Oh my gosh. You know, um, am I worthy enough to have normal love and affection? Yeah. It's isolating on both sides, isn't it? It sure is. For the person who's drinking too much and for their significant other or their adult child or Or whatever. Right. Yeah. It's an isolating. The whole thing is an isolating experience. So group support of any kind. That's right. Fights that isolation and disconnection. That's right. And there again, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. That's mm-hmm. right. That's right. That's so key. Yes. Well, so what are some other things? I mean, we've got the obvious get yourself into AA or Al-Anon. That's right. Or, or something to that effect. Right. What else can we do kind of as a, a prevention to kind of get out ahead of it, so to speak, to take such good care of ourselves that we are less likely to develop a habit. That's right. Well, I tell you, one of the things that my therapist told me, the one that I said, hey, I want to do your job. Yeah. Yes. Um, Therapists need therapy. We do. We do. We do. Oh, my goodness. We are human. We need therapy. We need therapy all the time. All the time. (laughs) Just as much as, as the person sitting across from us in that that chair. Yeah, Yeah, we do. And I think that's the first place. It's our mental um, exercise. When, when we are the ones giving the therapy, Mm -hmm. we are essentially the, the, we're plugged into them, but it's draining us. Mm -hmm. We need to be in the chair. We need to be in the other side so that somebody that's helping us, we can receive that energy and we can receive solutions for our problems, right? And treatment for our trauma. And treatment, yes. For big plug for trauma. EMDR. Yes, big plug right there. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the first place that I would go is, is find somebody that you don't know because we're going to know lots of people in the circle, right? We're going to know lots of different therapists. Mm-hmm. Find somebody you don't know so that you can emotionally throw up on them and it doesn't matter, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And then... You might check yourself. What else can I do? Can I practice? You mentioned meditation. Mm. Can I practice art? Can I be doing other things? So here's some things that I have um, gotten from, you know, a couple of different sources. One, um, let's see, Cheryl Richardson's book, The Art of Extreme Mm Self-Care. She's got a whole list of really wonderful things that have to do with emotional first aid and just taking care of yourself with, uh, you know, with regard to your, your week, your stressful week, but mm-hmm. also just things to do to just do as a habit. Right. Um, so there's mirror talk with self-reflection. Yes. Um, that is literally talking to yourself in the mirror. That's right. It sounds so hokey. It's not easy. It's, it's not easy no. to do. Mm-mm. I've tried it. Um, <laughs> eating whole organic, clean food. I can't emphasize that enough. You know, you you may not want to go vegan, but 
really paying attention to what you're putting in your body and making sure that it's clean um, and not processed. That's right. That's a huge deal. It really is. Because food can be numbing, as we were talking about earlier. Yes. Invite yourself into pleasure. And I put movement under this. So with breakthroughs in neuroplasticity, movement can actually provide your brain with new synaptic pathways. So Moshe Feldenkrais said, if you change the motor cortex, it has parallel effects in how you think Mm -hmm. and how you feel. So actually, you can use movement to give yourself, to give your brain an upgrade. Yes. That's great. Any kind of movement that you enjoy, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Make a list of your positive attributes. Tap yourself on the head regularly. (laughs) I think bilateral tapping is the best. Back and forth, one side to the other. Yes. And tap on different parts of your head. Mm -hmm. Um, List things you're proud about. You're proud of you about. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) engage the law of attraction. And we could spend a whole episode on this. And no I know we've, we've got to close we sure could. Yes. But yeah, engage the law of attraction. And by that, what I mean is do anything that it takes to raise your vibration. That's right. So distract yourself with anything that's fun or exciting for you. Uh, a project that engages your mind. Um, rearranging the furniture. That's what does it for me. <laughs> Painting. Right. Um, calling somebody who makes you laugh taking a walk, doing anything, noticing nature, watching babies, watching puppies, watching kittens, anything that makes you laugh or smile. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Invite yourself back into pleasure. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we've got to end it here, but please write to us um, at reconceivedtherapy at gmail.com. It's been so good talking with you, Stephanie. Thank, thank you for having you me today. Yeah, so thank much. you, Stephanie. Yes, thank you. Find Stephanie at DebraLcox.com, and we'll see you next yes. time. I'm on Facebook, too. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.